We've all had that moment where we've been mid-description of a procedure and you notice your listener has a confused look on their face. In many cases, our natural want is to power through and continue trying to teach using the same old language, the same old song and dance. But what if there was an easier way? Well, welcome to Episode 8, a cross-pollination podcast on understanding fluency and the science of behavior analysis. Remember, we're ACE-approved, so listen for the two keywords, then pop over to the site, atypicalba.com, to purchase your CE. You can also find references and our contact info if you have any questions. Or you can hit us up on Facebook at the Atypical Behavior Analyst. So without further ado, let's meet up with the rest of the ATBA and the PBS team to talk about behavior analytic fluency. All right, welcome back to this episode of the Atypical Behavior Analyst and PBS Matters, our cross-poly nation uh, podcast. So welcome back, everyone. Hey, Kelly. Hello. 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 Excellent. So we are here and today we are going to be tackling um, in this part three of our four-part series, the topic of fluency. Um, So thinking about being fluent and what that actually means as a science, and then also what that means when we're working with individuals and professions outside of the behavior analytic world. So my first thought was just to kind of refresh everybody on what it means to be fluent and just the real quick definition from um, dictionary.com, all sorts of things. Awesome. Um, To be fluent is an adjective and it is of a person able to express oneself easily and articulately. Now I'm not a huge fan of that just because I know that I struggle with being articulate. Um, So this is one of those, it brings up a little bit of emotional responding when we talk about fluency. But I do find it interesting that a lot of the definitions start off with language and being fluent in a certain language. Um, But there is one that says um, able to flow freely or being fluid. So there's another aspect that sounds a little bit more behavioral when it comes to fluency. Initial thoughts. That's clearly fluency as it's used by normal people. But I think obviously fluency, as we're going to talk about it today, is probably more the way that people in learning sciences would use fluency, which should have been prepared at the definition, but instead I'll give you my understanding, which is um, if you are fluent, then it means that you can respond accurately and probably quickly, right? So um, it's one thing to have somebody pose a question and to take a good long while to think about the answer, right? So I think about my kids and their multiplication tables. So we would say they're fluent. If I can fire off uh, questions and they answer, they answer almost instantaneously, we'd say they're fluent. So that's how we're gonna use it today, specifically uh, with practitioners understanding of the underlying principles of human behavior. So today's all about fluency in your science and how being fluent in your science can do nothing but help when you're interacting uh, with other people from your field, people from outside your field. Um, Not to mention, it just makes you a better practitioner, obviously. Isn't that just really interesting on its own? Because like you said, that concept of kind of fluency and almost... 
you know, something around the kind of ease of it in, in some respects, like the, the language that we have just doesn't fit with most other vernacular, right? You know, so there's a real kind of interesting area just in there that we're, we're talking about this kind of concept of fluency, yet we have a language that makes it difficult for us to do that with people that haven't kind of had the same training experiences that we've had. And it's why fluency is so important. That's the irony. So before we started recording, um, Kelly posed a really good question, which is, how do you know someone is fluent? Because of course, as, as behavioral scientists here, we're interested in, um, in answering that question, right? If we're going to tell people they should be fluent, we should probably back it up with how you would know you're fluent in addition to why you would want to be fluent. Um, and it's actually a difficult question to answer because we're looking at it more in terms of outcomes, which mm. is an area where we start to become slightly uncomfortable. Um, the, the, there's a number of outcomes we're interested in uh, that we thought about before recording. So we know that being fluent in your science means that you can understand what other people are doing and why they're doing it. Um, in a way that ties it to behavioral principles as you understand them. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a different practitioner from a different field and they're recommending whatever it is they're recommending, being fluent in your science means being able to see what someone else is recommending and breaking that down into the sort of relevant behavioral elements and saying, yes, that probably will work given what I know about behavior or no, that probably will not work given what I know about behavior. So that's one of them. Um, another one that we'll probably chat about today um, is the other half of that, right? So translating what you want to say and instead of using your jargon, instead of relying on jargon, being able to translate your jargon into plain whatever language you're speaking. <laughs> um, that's another indication to me that you're fluent in your science. So that allows, you know, when, when you're talking to someone else, it allows you to assess sort of the risk of what they're, or the possible benefit of what they're recommending. Um, and when it comes to translating, that's down to functional communication. If you can't, if you're not fluent in your science, you're gonna struggle with functionally communicating mm. what you want to communicate. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, nicely embedded with this mini series that we've got, isn't it? Because I think that that ability to be able to um, tie things back to the kind of behavioral principles and interpret other approaches, you really need your interpersonal skills when you're doing a job like that. <laughs> because you can really put the cat amongst the pigeons if you're not very careful uh, in terms of, you know, people do not want us to break their approaches down in behaviorally analytic terms and feed it back to them, do they? That's, um, that's yeah, that's not a tasty dish by anybody's uh, stretched imagination, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> and that's such a good way, that's such a good way to pay, that's a non-exemplar, isn't it? Right, that's a perfect example of what not to do. So when we talk about how important it is to be fluent because you can take what they're saying and translate it into behavioral science terminology, critical um, caveat here is please do that in your own head. Yeah. Unless they ask you, unless they're just so keen to learn everything about behavioral science and they want to know what you would call it hasn't happened to me yet in my career. I don't know, maybe some of you are more lucky. Um, 
but the translation needs to be happening in between your ears and back on the way out. Yeah. So understand it in your own terms and then choose to communicate it back in a language that they will understand as opposed to in your own terms. This kind of goes into like that value of having a verbal community, because if you do find yourself saying like, you know, trying to speak it out loud and maybe you're doing it for your own benefit of, okay, if I, if I say this out loud, it'll make sense. Well, no, go back, go find a BCBA buddy and run it past them. Am I articulating this correctly? Am I interpreting what they're telling me through the behavior analytic lens and responding in the correct way? You know, that should be where you get your feedback from um, in regards to your behavior analytic jargon and fluency. When you're talking to the staff or the caregivers or whomever that you're working with, no, your feedback needs to be, do you understand this? Can you do this? And just leaving it at that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the there's, uh, are you guys familiar with the, the term practice leadership? Is that something that's spoken about in services over in the States or is that more that's of a, UK? That's a PBS term that most um, US-based behavior analysts wouldn't know. And therefore, we would love to hear more about it. Uh-huh. I've put myself on the spot there a little bit, haven't I? <laughs> um, I mean, essentially, in many respects, it's about role modeling, you know, so it's in that kind of within kind of human services and pr- probably predominantly in that kind of adult services, residential care homes, supported living services, even hospitals. But it's about kind of who's role modeling in, in many respects. So typically you'd be hoping for around about your team leader type level. I don't know what the equivalent position might be within a within kind of service. Um, and one of the really key aspects of, of that role is about the translation of support plans within that team. And I think one of the things we really learned there is, is asking people, you know, look, you know your team, how do we describe this to your team? So it's very interesting. There's almost this kind of step model that we kind of end up with, even within our own field, inside echo chambers, you know, there's like a PBS echo chamber, that's a splinter from the ABA community in the UK. Um, and there's a lot of similar language in there, but there are some real avoidance of particular terms, et cetera, et cetera. But again, I think that that what we're talking about here, translation was one of the first things that we mentioned about. I think it's such a key kind of um, approach in, uh, for, for us kind of from the behavioral analytic community, but it's just what makes services work too. You know, do the people that are really doing the job and delivering the direct care and support, do they understand what's going on? You know, from a leadership perspective, it's really important that people are kind of compelled by that strategic narrative, isn't it? If people don't understand that narrative, then they're not going to be on board and they're not going to follow you. So you might sound great and you might think we sound super clever, but, um, you know, yeah, if nobody's... One of those things about leadership, you're not leading nothing if nobody's following you, right? You know? So do you know what that just makes me think, Patty? Um, So you're talking about frontline leadership, which would be be the same in whatever uh, industry, and how incredibly important it is for frontline leadership to be fluent in their science so that they can translate back and forth. You know what's really interesting, I think, is sort of the the longer you're in a field, right? In theory, the more fluent you should become in whatever it is you're doing. In this case, it's science. So the people who are best prepared to be fluent in their science and to have this ease of communication are not gonna be the people who 
need it the most. It's, you know, it's most important for people on the front line and they're just starting out, right? They're lucky if they even have mastery of the jargon yet, but those are the people who most need to have incredible fluency uh, because they need to do this translating back and forth. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? It almost makes you wonder, are we teaching it backwards? Yeah, because we teach jargon first and then we teach layman's terms second, right? With the more sort of examples that we get over time. I wonder if it would be easier if we focused, you know, on the, on the RBTs of the world of getting them to speak in a way that is much more plain language. And then over time, um, you know, having it more common in verbal communities to use that more technical language when, when you're less of a risk, <laughs> right? Fascinating. I can hear my grandma in the back of my head. Yes. And, you know, youth is wasted on the young. It's almost like, you know, that experience. Let's say you need it earlier in your career, right? You know, um, but uh, yeah, how, how do you get that without making a few of those mistakes along the way? I think, you know, some of those, some of those lessons we learn are, are uncomfortable, right? At times. I mean, we all did SAF meds, I'm sure at one point for your, you know, make sure you're say all fast each minute, each day. I didn't do well on them. Again, not fluent <laughs> when it comes to articulation things. Um, but yeah, that was the focus. Make sure that you can get this many things. You can spout out this many terms. So then I graduated and I got my BCBA and I'm like, yes, I'm going to go change the world behavior analysis. And I walked in and started spouting off my SAF med terms. And yeah, I sound fluent and every parent just stared at me. Like I, you're, you're speaking a foreign language and it's taken several years and trial by fire. A lot of times to realize, yes, I can be fluent in my science through my actions and, you know, teaching people and modeling, like you said, Patty, and, um, you know, seeing progress with my clients, but there's also a side of fluency that we need to separate with just talking to ourselves and what that looks like. Yeah. I think my understanding of the principles sort of, it, it deepens exponentially the more examples that I see. And inevitably, the more examples that I see are going to be free of jargon, right? It's just going to be picking out the contingencies that exist in whatever happens to be your practice environment. Um, so I think, you know, as, as people in supervisory positions, especially, it's critical that you give people two ways of talking about things. Yeah, so, so if you're discussing a particular contingency that's, you know, maybe helpful or problematic with a supervisee, it's not enough to only use our jargon to explain it. It's not enough to only use our jargon to discuss an intervention because that person's going to have to turn back around and explain this to people who don't speak that language. Hmm. So unless you prepare them, right, unless you sort of you check it out, you say, okay, so what does that sound like in plain language to you? And then make sure that they're saying something that that's correct, that makes sense. Um, you know, and, and in practice, that could mean, depending on how high stakes this explanation is, I think there's a great reason to pull in peers to, to sort of ask, you know, other laymen, hey, if I say this, that, and the other, does that make sense to you? Would you know what I'm talking about? 100%. Yeah. You know, I think that 
kind of a common theme I've seen with, you know, podcasts with Kelly and I, and then us with the um, cross poly nation mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the, all the, pretty much everything we're saying is, is things that we need to consider when we are supervising people, you know, how important it is to, to teach these different things and to kind of throw an example out there, you know, this is something that's been coming to my mind as y'all have been talking is sometimes when I'm explaining to parents about reinforcement, you know, as opposed to just trying to beat them over, um, their head with, with our definition of it. You know, a lot of times I try to give them the explanation of, let's say that you are asked to do something. You know, if I ask you to, to mow my lawn, you might do it for $20, but you're probably not going to do it for a dollar, you know? And so I try to give them that idea of how, you know, sometimes you can be reinforced, you know, sometimes this particular thing will be reinforcing for a particular behavior at a particular time. And so when I'm trying to explain that, instead of going into all this jargon, I try to explain it in a way that they can relate to it because most people that I'm talking to have the desire to earn money and have, and, and are only going to do certain tasks for certain amounts of money. So just kind of, you know, that's one example of how I try to explain it to them as I try to Kind of, if you think about, I've brought this up a few times too, is that perspective taking. Okay, let me come from the perspective of that person that I'm talking with and what might be important to them or or what might be the Mm -hmm. framework that they're coming from. And that's how I try to explain a term or, you know, principle or something like that to them. And that's such a game changing skill. It really is because, you know, obviously part of our job, no matter how anyone is practicing, is having to explain what you're seeing in non-scientific terms, right? This is a huge challenge. But we don't have a lot of guidelines for how to do that, right? Has anyone given you a model or a formula? Like here we are saying, hey, do it. You really need to do it. Well, okay, I want to. How? (laughs) You know, there are some things that that are really good advice. And Shanna, you've just named a brilliant piece of advice, which is consider who you're talking to, right? If they mow lawns for a living and you're trying to explain to them the concept of size, you know, for, for uh, a reinforcer, that's a brilliant example, right? In terms of size of, of reinforcer, would you be willing to mow a lawn for $1? Nope. Would you be willing to for 10? Maybe. Would you be happy to for 200? Yes, I would. And that's why size is important. And then bring it back to the explanation. Um, Maybe their kid, yeah, maybe they're trying to incentivize something and and the struggle is around, you know, they're, this is slightly different consideration, but maybe they're, they're wanting a kid that has cleaned their room once in the last decade to start cleaning it every day, right? Okay, well, that's a lot of responding to get something that may or may not be worth it. So that could be a conversation around immediacy or it could be a conversation around size. Uh, but let's say the conversation is, is just the size, yeah? You want him to clean his room every day for a week, but you're only gonna give him a dollar, but you're also giving him a $5 per week allowance, yeah? You're gonna have some real issues there. But in tying it back to what that parent Uh, maybe does for work or does for fun, that's how you get those points across. And this is not a thing we teach. No, instead, what it would be is we're going to use matching law. (laughs) And we would, that's what we would say. We're going to use matching law because the response cost is too high and the reinforcer isn't high enough. 
Yeah. Or even if you took the jargon out of that, even if you said you're requiring too much and the payout isn't good enough, maybe I'll get that. But do you know when I'll get it for sure? Is if you give me an example that I can think through from my own perspective. That is powerful. The first time I ever come across matching law. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember the first paper I printed off and sitting down to read and coming across these words I had never ever come across before asympotic what, I know, what the hell does that even mean um you know so written the first one that i read i think i did have to go and sit down the shed at the end of the garden for a couple of days after reading that just to get my head back in in the real world but you know and then you kind of read on and it's really interesting because i feel now like i've got such a good handle on that because of that misery at the start of it going what is this I have no idea I feel really stupid but then reading around that speaking to people and oh, I've got a great paper that explains that a little bit in some easier terminology and I'll send it over to you etc 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 now I think it's really interesting like all of this because I mean um you know, one of the challenges we've had here is that there are some behaviour analysts that would, you know, want to take us all out the back and shoot us for even talking about this stuff, you know? Um, how dare we? How dare we? Um, and there's one of those challenges. And here's a question for all you guys. I, I wonder, I don't know if you've seen this, like people that do seem to have that rote language, they're able to uh, kind of articulate the science really well but interesting watching the application of that and you start thinking, ah, there's a, there's, there's a really interesting mismatch there between what people are saying and, and what they're able to do. Yeah, you guys, are, and if I'm being really honest, there's times when I've probably done it. You know, people don't want to look stupid. Do you just do, have I sometimes nodded in conversations or I'm not sure exactly if I'm being really honest that I've 100% got that? I have, definitely, you know, definitely. It's a complicated language that we have, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it's okay, I think, for sometimes some of us go, do you know what, I'm just gonna have to get my nose back in the books to be able to make sure I can really clearly explain that back to you. And I think that's all right. And this is a completely, uh, this is an opinion, it's anecdotal. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that there's uh, a guaranteed truth behind this. But in my experience, I have found that the behavior analyst I've run across, who are very comfortable using common language, tend to be intuitively better behavior analysts. They tend to be better practitioners. The behavior analysts that tend to be really interested in the jargon and in nitpicking how everyone is using it, it and again, just my own experience, tend to really struggle when it comes to, to practicing in a way that leads to really significant outcomes. Has anyone else found that? Yes. And I think, <laughs> um, you know, Leah, you, you joined us for the podcast before, you know, where we really started looking at this with some other people in the field in the UK that perhaps haven't been, I think, I think we use the term critical friends to describe mm. them perhaps, you know. And we were talking about, there's a spectrum of practitioners out there and it's interesting because we kind of all need each other in many respects, I think, in some ways. You know, there's a place for everybody out there. And I think sometimes it's about figuring out that that place uh, in, in some ways, you know. Um, we need the researchers pushing the practice forward and so, you know, uh, but then it takes, you know, the, the, the next kind of step of followers that are able to translate that, you know. 
like the RFT stuff, you know, the first time you pick up and start reading about RFT, my goodness, again, that's another shed moment. You know, you need to go and spend some time down the shed. Um, <laughs> but then hopefully you speak to other people that are more fluent, not only kind of in the science, but the application of that and can help you understand, um, you know, it certainly is, I think, this line of work for, for any of us. It, what a journey, right? It, it is. It's not, you know, learning to do what most of us do for a living. Uh, there's a reason that we require degrees <laughs> that, that usually last multiple years before you're able to go out and, you know, uh, wreak havoc on the rest of the world with your newfound toolkit. But yeah, I'm just thinking, I wonder if it would be helpful or valuable for us to, and I'm putting you all on the spot now, including myself, because I haven't thought it through, um, to just have a think about what does, what has this looked like in practice for you before? Can you think of a situation in your own career um, where you really, maybe you were working with someone from a different field, maybe you were working with someone from our field, but they just treat in a slightly different way where you really had to get down to the details of why they were saying what they were saying, why you were saying what you were saying and figuring out if you are actually on a different page or if you're on exactly the same page, you're just using different language. As I've been saying this, I've got two that come to mind straight away. And one, the, one of them happened quite, quite some time ago. I was, uh, treating one individual who also was receiving um, speech services. And, you know, this is sort of back in the day when behavior analysts may have really struggled to, to work well with, in the States, we call them SLPs. And so the SLP kind of went into the conversation thinking things are not going to go well, right? Assuming that I would be recommending something that she wouldn't approve of or, you know, vice versa. But I was really lucky because she was brilliant. She was a, a master of, of her science um, and very fluent in her um, approach to explaining it to other people. So that interaction between the two of us was mind blowing to me because we agreed on everything. We were recommending exactly the same thing. She was using one way of explaining it and I was using another. But because we were both motivated and um, capable of pulling apart, what, what have you noticed in this individual, right? Why are you recommending what you're recommending? What's your desired outcome here? What could it possibly look like? And, and what do we need other people to do? It was exactly the same. We, we had come to exactly the same conclusions. But I know very well. Had it been, um, you know, maybe a different behavior analyst who didn't want to hear it or a different SLP who didn't want to explain it, they were saying, you know, we, we started saying two different things. And so probably the client and all of those around that client would have been under the impression that we didn't agree. And that's what it looked like on the outset. Um, and that's really problematic. The second example I can think of from my, my recent life um, is, you know, in, in aviation training. So the way that we, we train pilots, you might assume correctly that they don't explain it <laughs> in behavioral science terminology, right? So when I have these conversations with people who train pilots for a living, I am on constant uh, sort of receive instead of transmit 
And I'm constantly thinking to myself, okay, why, why do they do that? Where did that come from? Did anyone think about that, <laughs> right? Or did they just do it the way they've always done it? And if I don't agree, what do I ask next? Um, not what do I say or recommend, but what do I ask next? How do I find out um, where this came from? What about you guys? Can you think of how this has sort of helped you? All right, if you're listening for CEs, your first keyword is transmit. T-R-A-N-S-M-I-T. How do you transmit your information? I can't think of like a, not necessarily an example, but as you were talking, Lee, it kind of made me think, you know, in addition to that fluency that we need, it's almost like we need to have maybe a little more humility and a little less pride in those situations of, you know, kind of like stepping back and saying um, early on, I was given the impression that behavior analysts were the end all be all and that we didn't need any other profession that we could do it all. And, um, and so I think when we come into a situation where we're collaborating with speech therapist or, or whoever is to realize like, I've got something great to offer, but so do they, you know, and, and just being willing to just not come into it like it's a competition or looking down at them or like they have nothing to offer, but just also it just kind of come in with the right attitude, I think can help us go a long way as well. And curiosity, right? Curiosity is my favorite word these days mm-hmm. because it, it encompasses so many things that people should do, right? And one of them is what you just said, which is operate under the assumption that sure you have something to add and so do they. So you should be curious. You should figure out what do they have to add? Be curious about what is their experience? Be curious about what you're looking at anyway. What are you there to analyze? What have you asked, you know? Um, I think if there is one, <laughs> there's one thing that I could just sprinkle across the globe, <laughs> you know, to land on every behavior analyst, it would be curiosity. Just, just work under yeah. the assumption that there's a lot of stuff you don't know yet. And if you would just be curious and ask about it, number one, you're going to avoid so many opportunities to shove your foot in your own mouth. And number two, um, you're going to learn things that there is no way people would have known to tell you. Yeah. Um, if you just, you, you're going at everything from the perspective of almost like a curious child, right? Like a toddler, like, why is, why is this gray? Yeah. Why is it square? Why did you do this? You know, all these I've, I've taken to, um, telling clients when I'm, when I'm just starting a project with them, I give them a disclaimer. Okay. So for the first time that I come and visit, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you a load of stupid questions, just so you know, be prepared. I'm going to ask you things that are to appear to be so obvious, but I will have no idea why you do them that way. And you'll probably be annoyed <laughs> yeah. just, just so you're prepared. Um, but it, that's why. But- vision of your disclaimer, Leah, like, like, I'm going to come in and day one, I'm just going to be like a toddler. I'm just going to like, why is that? that? Yeah. Yes. And um, it also made me think, sorry, Shanna, I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, but um, also made me think, you know, curious and curiosity, what the famous saying about curiosity killed the cat? Yeah. You had an article there, didn't you? Um, I don't know, did I? <laughs> you had an article that I think I remember is titled something like, yes, I'm a cat. And it's oh, yeah. It's, it's on a similar thing to, the, to what we're discussing, I think, if I remember. It actually is. It yeah. actually is. 
So what was that? I'm trying to think. I wrote an article. I think I called it Yes, I'm a Cat because I was <laughs> I was making a joke out of, you know, um, in, in organizations, you, there are all these efforts to, you know, team build or, or whatever it is that, that they're out to do, but it's, you know, which animal are you, okay? And I think, you know, if you're a behavior analyst and you're in a, a multidisciplinary team and sort of your team gets together and they're like, guess what guys, it's gonna be so much fun. We are gonna ha- do, you know, play this game where you get to pick what animal you are. And the reason we're doing it is because we wanna know about your personality and the behavior analyst in the room is going to be in the corner shaking their head with a look on their face like they just bit into a lemon, right? But I think what I advocated in that article is just, who cares? What do you have to lose, right? What do you really have to lose by being like, do you know what? Um, I'm a cat or, and why? They're, they're, so it's about being fluent in your science, right? In that example is understanding that what that group is after is to get some sort of insight into your preferences, some sort of insight into how they might uh, pair with you, right? Um, and if you, which is funny because I'm I own dogs, <laughs> and I don't know why I went with cat anyway. Um, but but if you come, to, you know, well, fine. Then I'm a dog. Yeah. Why are you a dog? Well, because I love dogs. Have you seen my massive, you know, puppy that's the size of a pony? Then then that completely does achieve that outcome they might not have come out and say that that's that that's what they were after but because you're able to to be fluent enough in your science to understand the desired outcome you can participate in a way that's not so (laughs) off-putting um and actually does add value and or at least isn't a risk yeah nobody's harmed in in calling yourself an animal right (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, you're talking about like when you're curious or coming in initially and asking a lot of questions because you don't understand. But I've even found in times where when somebody says something, a parent, another professional, and I like their initial, what they initially say, I'm like, Ooh, I don't think I agree with that. Or if I'm even offended or feel a little like averse by it, my, I am trying to learn to be like, ask questions. And I do because as opposed to coming back with an attack, it's coming back with questions. Sometimes I realize, oh, I misunderstood. I actually do agree. Or, you know, we do have common ground or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But it's, I think sometimes we miss out on a a good opportunity whenever we just come back with an attack as opposed to a lot of questions. I think it's also, it's a really, the article's a, a kind of good example of some of what we're talking about here. Because if I, if I remember, I think you're talking about the kind of risk that some of these approaches will carry. And, you know, what's the risk of, you're a cat, I'm a monkey, he's a chimpanzee, whatever. You know, like you say, and it's being able, and I think it does go back to the very nature of this, this podcast um, about the kind of fluency in the science. Because as I, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, one of the things you allude to is, you know, is this building rapport? Like you say, are we pairing? Are we building rapport? Because actually, if you can see through, you know, if you are really fluent in the science, you'll see where there might be the delivery of it, actually, in some aspects of that um, very interesting, fun uh, game. Like you say, rather than kind of poo-pooing it, just jumping in with both feet, you know, jumping in with both feet and kind of figuring it out when you're inside. Or if you have to be the weirdo in the room, you know, like I so frequently enjoy being, when you're in that team setting and they're like, hey, this is what we're doing. We're gonna, you know, everyone's gonna be an animal. It's okay to say, okay, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, what's the point? And, and 
you know, hopefully don't ask it quite that way. Hopefully you're a little bit more tactful. <laughs> um, but but there's nothing wrong with being curious um, and and with trying to figure out, but by understanding the desired outcome, you're going to be much better able to help everyone else reach that desired outcome. Yeah, kind of yeah. tying some literature fun things with this. Um, there's a couple of like, if people are curious, because I know there's the hesitation of, well, if I'm not supposed to use my technical jargon, um, but I don't want to use layman terms, I mean, there's Alan Poling and Anita Lee um, wrote the article, Commit Heresy, Stop Using Contingency. Um, and I think even before that, considering like if you're working on an interdisciplinary team um, and there's the fear of non-evidence-based practices or it doesn't match the language that we use, so maybe it's not the same, there's articles out there that can provide you with these nice little flow charts. Another one of those is ethical considerations for interdisciplinary collaboration with prescribing professionals. And it's a very long title, but they have a really cool flow chart that's really simple of, is it evidence-based? Cool. If it's not, here's what you can do. And if, if things match after you're curious and you ask some more questions, okay, cool. But that also goes into why we get so hung up on our own language because it's hindrance. In the long run, yeah, it's great for my ego that I can spout off all these terms in so many you know seconds, but what does that actually do for the people that I'm working with? It does nothing other than yeah. make me look like a pretentious jerk. To, yeah, and to use our own jargon to critique us from for using our own jargon. Yeah, <laughs> what's the function? <laughs> what is what is the function of using jargon? Because I think you'll find <laughs> what happens is it doesn't function the way that you wish it would. Whereas if if this is about functional communication or having an impact on other people's behavior, pretty obviously using jargon is not the most functional way to get there well it definitely has an impact on their behavior just <laughs> it well, might not be the yeah. one that we hope for yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what i think going back to your original like your question sometime back about you know examples that we've seen and it's not so much my interactions and, and finding that fluency but rather working with a family and learning to change my jargon um, and learning to adapt my way of speaking with them and listening to them and taking in all their information and asking more questions. When they talk to me now, it is without saying the words contingency or antecedents or variables, they'll tell me, oh, um, you know, my, my individual woke up the other day and they just seemed a little bit grumpy. And so I decided, you know what, let's give you five more minutes to go to sleep. I'm like, check you out as opposed to no we need to follow the schedule and things like that they're able to start to see those variables and then it extends to and then when they got up they were a little bit more understanding and they were more likely to go take a shower excellent that's really cool i mean they've just described to me this beautiful contingency of motivating variables and a, a shift in their own personal behavior and how they handle a situation without ever using jargon and i'm able to go that's excellent keep doing those things and it's been a beautiful progress. At no point have I tried nowadays, um, as opposed to when I was younger, to switch their language. That's because that's silly. They've been using terms like reward or, and I will give, this is the one that makes me cringe into a ball and I go into the fetal position and cry, having behaviors, <laughs> deep breath. But that's, that is, I, I am more likely to change my own behavior. I can, I can change my, my language that I use in my verbiage um, if that's what pairs me and keeps me as a reinforcing agent for, you know, the families that I work with. Yeah. That's such a beautiful yeah. example because we do that, don't we? And you know what? I've probably done that in the past. 
God, I hope I haven't, but I might have. I might have had a member of staff say something like they're having behaviors. And on a very bad day, I might have said something like, well, they're probably engaging in a particular behavior that you do or do not like, <laughs> you know, uh, but what does that add? It adds nothing. It doesn't change their understanding. Yeah, that's a big deal. So it, it's definitely not worth intervening if you are not going to fundamentally change their understanding. And you're, you know, the chances that you're going to change someone's understanding through the use of jargon, uh, probably not good. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about like how we need to change our language. And, and, you know, it kind of goes back to like what I see in each of the talks we've had is we need to do the same things with ourselves that we're trying to do with our clients. We try to help our clients communicate more effectively. You know, we need to communicate more effectively. And through having these talks, it's got me to start, you know, to start realizing like, okay, how am I doing these things? How am I doing these things with my clients? How am I intervening? How am I assessing? And I'm trying to turn that back around on myself and be like, oh, these are tools that I can use to help change my behavior, you know? And I think that we lose sight of that. Um, I think somebody used some kind of cool little, um, you know, expression or something about it, you know, I just lost my thought on what on the, what that was, but, um, but, you know, it's just being able to, to, turn it around and, and kind of look at it from our perspective there and just saying like, you know, we need to be evaluating ourselves as often as we are evaluating our clients. And it's going to help us as professionals, as individuals, but it's also going to help, uh, uh, help us better help our clients and their caregivers as well. Yeah. How, how's this for, for a good phrase to start to adopt? Whose behavior needs changing, <laughs> right? Is it really their behavior that needs changing or is it your behavior that needs changing to match? And there's the, there's the old interesting kind of quotes in there that, you know, you, you can't make anybody else change their behavior, but you can address your own, right? It's much easier. It's much easier. And it's not easy, but it's much e easier to address your own than it is anybody else's, right? Yeah. Again, I think um, you know, that kind of concept of echo chambers and, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating. You know, your experience is your experience, right? And the kind of, particularly if you get out into the, into the big wide world and you start trying to apply your kind of trade and skills across different settings, that's, what that's when the kind of pennies really drop from, from me personally. You know, I think when I've gone to certain ABA provisions, it's kind of all right if you're all talking ABA. In one respect, you know, it's cool, sweet. As long as everybody, as long as you're not using that with parents and all that kind of stuff, then, then great, it's cool. And you'd expect to kind of higher frequency of some more technical language in those settings, right? But then there are settings where it just might be the worst thing you could possibly do um, because people are looking for it. People are looking for it and they're going to jump on it and they're going to call you out on it. And it just, you know, it quickly becomes a serious problem not just something that's a little bit disruptive, it becomes a serious problem because you can end up in these strange philosophical debates with people around kind of approaches, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's something there about, you know, avoiding some of the, you know, that careful use of language is going to avoid some potential challenges for us in certain settings. And I think one of the other things I really wanted to say on today's podcast, that I really, really wanted to say was... Um, just wanted to make sure, and I, I hope that we're hitting the right tones with all of this, because look, I think this is a science that we all love, right? 
and we see the utility of it. We see how life-changing it's been, and we've seen it applied across a range of settings here. So we're not looking to beat up on ABA. That was never the intention at all. And if we've had anyone listening that thinks, hang on a sec, are these guys on our team or what? Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, in fact, I've always been really clear about it. I'm on the team of the people that we're supporting. You know, that's, that's my first kind of team. ABA, PBS, whatever it is, comes very much after that. You know, it's outcomes that we're looking to. But for me, the tool I've trained in and that I understand and that we're getting familiar with is ABA. So, yeah, I just thought it was really important to just, I think, probably on every episode, I just want to make sure that we keep saying that, that this is about, like, this is a field that we love and we care about, which is why we're doing some of these podcasts. You know, this isn't kind of knocking it on the head and, and wanting to call out people. This is so we can continue to move forward and, and, and use our science to kind of help people that need it. Yeah, I think this is very much um, for me. I don't know about for you guys, but for me, this comes from the the love of the science and the desire for for better dissemination um, and the desire for our scope of practice continue to to grow, you know, sort of wider and deeper. Um, so it's it's really coming from our own past screw ups. Yeah. Because I think all of us are at a point in our career now where we, we have a a long enough road to look at behind us to where there are several points that make you really cringe, (laughs) you know, Um, which is just the benefit of experience. The longer you work, the more times you'll make yourself cringe. Um, But because we've, you know, because we've been practicing long enough uh, to have a a decent pile of things that we've done wrong. Um, the intent here is to say, do you know what? This is how it's gone wrong. This is how I would do it differently if I had a do-over. And for that reason, here's what we want to contribute. And, and the whole point of this you know, cross-pollination um, podcast is really because, um, almost to touch back on what we discussed last, last podcast, which is, you know, this is all about improving your practice. Um, and yeah. one of the best ways to do that is just gather more examples, right? Speak to people who practice in a different country. Speak to people who practice in a different way. The benefit of that is now you get to learn not only from your own screw ups, <laughs> right? But from their screw ups, or hopefully, you know, things that they've found that are useful, um, things that they've found really worked for them that you might not ever encounter given your own verbal community. That's the whole point of this podcast. Um, and, you know, yes, we're only starting with the US and the UK. And, uh, you know, some of you who have lived your entire life in the US or your entire life in the UK might be under the foolish impression <laughs> that we're very culturally, you know, similar because <laughs> i can tell you as someone who has lived in both countries there's a wider gap than you think um <laughs> but but the you know the benefit of seeing how people practice in a different country or in a different way um is immeasurable almost it's you're going to learn so much more from a different verbal community than you are from your own that should be obvious, um, but I don't think it is. I think what I would love to see come out of this podcast is not just sort of a, a call to action, right? More people um, should be participating in this conversation, but also more people from other parts of the world. 
different types of practitioners, different types of people from different areas. Um, we need them in this conversation because, you know, while the four of us have lots of good experience, it's only our experience. And the more people we can have in this conversation, I think the better it is for our field. Would you say the more fluent we become? <laughs> I might. I okay. might. <laughs> so I think it's an excellent tie-in though, because, you know, it's, we've defined fluency in several different ways. Um, and we've kind of done a little bit of, you know, not bashing on it, but we've, we've talked about some of the, the issues, if you will, with have, with being almost too fluent and using it in, you know, incorrect settings or, you know, not the best settings, but what are just real quick, like, what are the values of being fluent in like real quick, one, two, three, just to kind of remind everybody that, yeah, watch your language, make sure that you're being appropriate with people um, that you're working with. But there is a, there are values to having this fluency. Hmm. I'm going to jump in first so that I can get in where I, the one I want to get in, <laughs> which is um, the one I personally find the most impactful, and that is understanding others. Yeah. So being fluent in my science has allowed me to have a deeper understanding of what other people are doing and why they're doing it. I think probably for me, it's about efficacy, I think, you know, um, and like you said, in terms of the, the intended population that we're working with, but like you say, also how, how to work with the key stakeholders in, in that. So I think, I think efficacy for me, fluency goes hand in hand with efficacy. Hmm. Mine might kind of fit in with what y'all are, are saying, but, you know, just what I'd mentioned earlier of just really taking that other people's perspective, the stakeholders, clients, you know, whoever, other professions, um, you know, just really making sure that we're, you know, in that rapport building process, that you're gaining a lot of information because that's going to help us know how to to translate our jargon to, to what they're saying and vice versa. Um, so just, you know, taking that other people's perspective and, and, and using that to the team's advantage. All right, well done adventurers. Your second keyword is receive, R-E-C-E-I-V-E, -E -E, receive. Remember to receive information instead of always transmitting. And then my, my thought is um, I value the fluency when I'm able to work with those other people in other disciplines um, I have a background with counseling and rehab at the same time that I was getting my undergrad in behavior analysis. And it was really cool because I had professors that were willing to listen to me talk through, okay, I learned this in rehab and, and what they're calling a trigger just sounds like an MO to me. Am I, am I right? Like it's a setting event and they're, yeah, okay. Yeah, that does make sense. And so being able to translate and now it's not that I'm, you know, superbly fluent, but when I come across an individual who may have more traumatic background or they have substance abuse or um, more personal issues, I can put things through that behavior analytic lens and be confident in the recommendations and the, and the perspective that I'm trying to take and what I'm trying to articulate. And then as Shanna said, making sure that we have that feedback, that our perspective is accurate with it. So I find value in, in being able to see and put things through that behavior analytic lens. I see thoughts, mm -hmm. Leah. Yeah, no, I just had an unexpected visitor. Um, oh. But actually, I did have a thought as well earlier, which is, do you know, being fluent-ish, not, not the final article with me yet, um, but being more fluent in my science has been a hugely helpful factor 
in allowing me to expand my own scope of practice. Yeah, so, so going from treating individuals to, I'm not gonna use the word treating, but working mm-hmm. with organizations, um, it's been critical because you know, even, even moving from one part of our literature to the next, um, just you know, the Java to J-O-B-M, <laughs> uh, hop, skip, and a jump. Um, if, I, if I had been less fluent in my science, it would have been a lot more difficult uh, for me to understand the difference between applying principles um, you know, with, with one individual at the center versus applying those principles with several <laughs> at the center. There's a slight analogy for me. It's like your toolbox, isn't it? You know, the more of those tools you know how to use effectively, you know, when you the, the kind of, you know, you, you have a wide range of options available to you when you step into these kind of new, this new task, you know, a new organization, a new setting, a new whatever it is, the more experience you have, the more fluent you are with the science, you know, the more you understand which might be the right tool for the job in, in that instance there, right? Yeah, that's an awesome point that intuitive portion. I don't always have to go back to the books um, to know that I need a hammer to put a nail yes. in. <laughs> yes, really good point, really good point. Yeah, so that links to the efficacy, I think, from yeah, you know, I have a friend here at the minute who's doing some work on our house and he is just a master of his, of his craft, you know, anything he understands, he understands how to sequence jobs, he understands, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's wonderful speaking to him about that kind of stuff. And I really get a sense of someone that's so fluent with his profession you know, that he just understands how to kind of structure the job, if you like. And, um, and again, it's quick, those responses are quick, um, but still has the confidence to say, let me think about that tonight. Mm. I'm not sure, because there are some books you might need to go back and just check, you know? Oh, God, no, I always, at any given moment, I have within arm's reach, some sort of a reference text. Uh, at the moment, it's uh, Tom Gilbert's Human Competence. Um, but it's it, always, always useful to go back to the literature, no doubt. And actually, do you know what I just thought, Patty? So, um, of course, you know, doing this kind of a podcast, you do put yourself out there for criticism. Um, but the funny thing is, is I would hope nobody would ever be under the impression that there's any love lost for our science when the whole episode is about the importance of knowing the science, yeah? The, and that's yeah. really what this is. It's, there is a wealth of information out there that all those brilliant, you know, um, maybe scientists, practitioners, maybe just scientists who don't do a lot of outside practice, but they've contributed um, an enormous wealth of information. Um, and I think the point of the podcast today is to say, you need to acquaint yourself <laughs> with that information because it's all too easy to continue to practice and not continue to dive back into that literature. Um, and what I always say is the longer you practice, in, in my experience, the more brilliant the literature looks because the more sense it makes to you. Yeah, the first time you read it, you don't have much to apply it to. Um, but I tell you what, if you revisit that same literature 10 years into your career, it's life changing. <laughs> it makes so much more sense. You can you can really appreciate the depth um, of the brilliance behind some of the things that, you know, behavioral scientists have, have contributed to the things that we do every day. 
So I think that's an excellent start to our, our take home message of remembering that fluency is something that's built. It's shaped. It takes time. You're not going to be a master to start with. Um, even though that's kind of the impression that we give ourselves. So be humble, be nice to yourself and understand that you're not going to be fluent right out of the get-go, but you have to continue to practice. Other thoughts on these takeaways of what, you know, we've discussed the value of it. We've discussed how to practice it. Any other thoughts and we'll wrap it up. I think you're pretty bang on, Kelly, to be honest with you. Um, In your summary, uh, I think you're right. Uh, You know, compassion is an important word uh, word in, in our world, right? And, you know, that kind of compassionate leadership is what's needed in service. You know, most of my work's in adult residential support living or hospitals and that kind of thing. And yeah, that word compassion is important. And I think for all of us, remembering when you've gone through your BCBA supervision hours and all that kind of stuff, just how horrible it was being in front of your supervisor and messing some of the, these kind of terminology up. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, and, um, and I think ACT in accordance with that people are going to make mistakes we're going to make mistakes you know and especially if you're looking to push it and we're looking to develop and we're looking to improve things we don't get it right all of the time um, but we were going to really help ourselves with fluency in the science you know it was really going to help us and yeah it's hard work becoming fluent you know it can be hard work and everyone's going to be on kind of different levels with that some people the academic side of things comes much easier some people are a real kind of practitioners and some people can't understand the theory unless they've engaged in the practice and all that kind of stuff you know your journey is your journey and to compare yourself to someone else is not wise i don't think but you know i think there is some accountability for ourselves and there are times when i'll find myself in a project and know ah I'm not as sharp on that as I think I need to be for this project. And that's the time to come back and think about how can I become more fluent in that area? You know, it can be fun, you know, it can be scary, of course, but I think, you know, that um, the attitude towards it, you know, can, you can either find it stressful or enlightening, you know, and, um, uh, and they're, you know, using some acceptance commitment therapy on yourself, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, so I think you summed it up lovely. And I, I, again, I think that the, the compassionate approach is something that's really important. And we need to model that with ourselves and with the people that we work with. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think I would say at the end of the day, what we know about fluency is you need it for yourself. You need it for your own practice. You need it to evolve. And our field needs you to be fluent so that our field can become more competent and our field can evolve. We can expand our scope of practice. Um, all of these things have that, uh, that science in common. Excellent. And on that note, we will take off. So cheers, friends, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye. Thanks, folks. Bye. Thanks Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website, atypicalba.com, for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes.